with me and turn to the Gospel of John. We find ourselves in chapter 3, working our way through this conversation with Nicodemus. And to be more accurate, probably, we've, we've gone through the conversation with Nicodemus, and now we're entering into uh, John's commentary on that, in, starting in verse 16. But let's read together from John chapter 3, start in verse 1. If you would stand with me as we honor the, the reading of Scripture together. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do the signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born again when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I say to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear it sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? And Jesus answered, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who is descended from heaven, the Son of Man. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. Light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we... We come to you this morning as we once again approach your word, Lord, and we pray that, that as we look at your word, and, and specifically we look at what it is to, to believe so that we may not perish but have eternal life. As we look at that this morning, Lord, I pray that your spirit would, would work in a, a marvelous way. 
May you open up the scriptures to us that we might see your wonderful truths. That we might comprehend these things and, and grasp them in, in our heart. Lord, we pray that if there is one that has not trusted you as their Lord and Savior, Lord, I pray that you would give them the eyes of faith today that they might see clearly and, and trust and embrace you as their Savior, as your King. Lord, we pray that as we study this passage, as your, as your church, Lord, I pray that you would work in us, spur in us. Give us what Jim Elliott said is a, a kick in the pants. Lord, we pray that you would do that and so much more. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. What is seems to be more and more common today is for people to say that they are Christians and the more and more you visit with them you realize that they deny the fundamental fundamental elements of the faith elements that you had believed that are always fundamental to what you believe to be a Christian. They question the supremacy of the scriptures. They flat out deny the atoning death of Jesus, the physical resurrection of Jesus. They put caveats on Jesus' deity. They do all of these things and claim to be Christians. We see this more and more in, in what we've has come to be referred to as progressive Christianity. For instance, I, I think when you think of progressive Christianity, you think of more liberal brands of Christianity, those who are supportive of, of the, the LGBTQ ideals, who are uh, supportive of, of same-sex marriage and, and some of those things. But I would say that ultimately what makes one progressive isn't their moral convictions on those matters, but their theological ones. These things that we associate with progressive Christianity spring from a debased theological position. Progressive means progress. So uh, the, the claim there is a, a better version of Christianity. A Christianity that is progressing forward. Which we would understand radically misunderstands the nature of our faith that is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. It can't, it can't get any better than God's word to us. My point here is what one believes is important. And just because one believes that they are a Christian or claims that title does not necessarily make it so. Does that make sense? One can believe that they are a Christian. They can believe that they will go to heaven. But if they deny the essential nature of, of Christianity by uh, denying what the, the scriptures say, the deity of Jesus, the atoning death of Jesus, these fundamental elements... I'm not sure why they would call themselves Christian because they're not in any meaningful way. But in fact, 
they are denying the Christian faith. To deny the essential doctrines of the Christian faith is to deny the Christian faith. And I would say in our day, progressive Christianity is a huge threat because it, it gives false assurance. It says on one hand, you can, you can be a believer. But it says on the other hand, that you can believe on your terms. You can believe what you want to believe. You can believe what is convenient for you to believe in the culture that we live in. You can justify the positions that you want to hold. And the lie of the devil is simple. You can have Jesus and you can have the desires of your flesh too. You can have the assurance of salvation and also have the freedom to be your own boss, your own guide, to not submit to Jesus Christ as the Lord of your life, but believe on your own terms, to believe what you want to believe. And what you want to believe makes you a Christian. Let me say this another way. And that is, belief is not subjective. Some apparently think that their salvation or their being a true Christian is dependent on what I would say is a subjective nature of their belief. In other words, I believe, therefore it is so. Is that the way it is? If you believe that you are a Christian, are you a Christian? I mean, that's, that's stupid, right? Because we wouldn't apply that to other areas of life. Although some might try. But it's foolish. I can't believe myself into being a doctor. If I believe I'm a, a medical doctor, then... I'm a medical doctor, and it really doesn't, how much, doesn't matter how much schooling I've had. It doesn't matter how many tests I've passed or patients I've treated. What matters is if I believe I am a doctor. I believe I can fly a helicopter. With all my heart. Would anybody take a ride with me if I said I didn't know anything about helicopters, but I believe I can figure it out on the fly? What if I said that I'm a, a girl? Does that make me a girl? Obviously, that isn't quite as far-fetched these days, but my point is that one might believe that they're a Christian, but that does not make it so. Belief is objective, not subjective. It matters what you believe, not just that you believe. Does that make sense? So when we come to, to John 3.16, and it says that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life, we need to take a little time and, and think about that word, believes, here. We need to understand a, a couple things at the onset. One, there is a great emphasis on belief or faith in the fourth gospel, in John's gospel. Notice that I said belief or faith. Some might make a distinction between those two words. Sometimes we do in, in English, but the Greek, there isn't that big a, a difference. For instance, um, if you looked in a concordance, an English concordance for the word faith, you will find one instance of the word faith in all of John's writings, and that's in 1 John 5, 4. Now, the reason for that is John's preference 
John, when he's writing, he prefers to use the verb form of the same word. So pistiu, that's the, the Greek word, rather than the, the, rather than the, the other, which is, is pistis. So the, the verb form uh, of the word here is genu genuinely translated believe in our English Bibles. But even in the, in the words, pistuo and pistis, you can hear the, the, the similarity between the, the verb and, and the noun. But what we're talking about here is the same thing. To believe in somebody and to have faith in somebody is exactly the same thing. So when one looks up the word believe in your English concordance, you will realize that John really likes that word. In fact, he uses that word 98 times in his gospel. Now, if we combine, if we combine the two words, faith and belief, and we look at those words in the gospel of Mark, for instance, we'll find those words 18 times in the gospel of Mark. In the book of Romans, if we combine those terms, faith and belief, we find it 55 times. And as we were going through Romans, faith was a major theme, wasn't it? And now we realize here that John uses this word 98 times throughout his gospel. Here's the other thing, and that is that since there is such an emphasis on having faith, we need to understand precisely what is meant by it in John's gospel. If one believes they are a Christian, are they? If one believes in Jesus, are they a Christian? What do they need to believe about Jesus? That he was a historical person? that he was a good teacher, that he was supernaturally wise, that he was a great example of servanthood. One might believe these things, but does that guarantee them eternal life? Because the, the belief that we're talking about here in John 3.16 is the belief that guarantees eternal life. It's important to get that right, isn't it? The belief that John is talking about here is a belief that if people believe, then they will not perish. It makes sense that we would explore what John means when he talks about this kind of faith or when he speaks of faith this way. I'll say it a different way. If salvation is ours through the instrument of belief or faith, then a wise person would want to understand what exactly this belief entails. How does faith operate to make salvation mine? Now, much of the, the trouble here, and we've highlighted some of this already, is the way in which we tend to think of faith today in our world. We take things on good faith. We buy things in good faith. On eBay, for instance, we pay somebody for a, in another part of the country or another part of the world, and we do it in good faith. We believe that they're going to send us the product that we have paid for already. We make deals in good faith that each person is going to hold up their end of the agreement. Now, in the case of eBay or other online retailers, there's ratings and reviews to help you decide if you want to put your faith in that person or not. I sold a, a gun online 
one time and the guy that bought it from me after he went and picked it up from the, the federal firearms license holder, which the law requires, he sent me a, a message thanking me. And in part of that, that message, he said, I didn't know if I should place my faith in you or not because you didn't have a rating on the site because I'd never used the site before. In other words, this guy was saying, I really took a chance on you. I really, I really stepped out in faith there. And that's how we often think of faith. Should I put my faith in this person or not? We put our faith in things that we cannot reasonably be assured of. It's a chance. In other words, we place our faith in what we can see or hear or be assured of. That's what we want to do, at least as much as we would like to. Another way we think of faith that makes things difficult is this idea of subjectivity that we already talked about. This is where faith is distanced from truth or evidence. You hear this often in the Christian world. You just got to have faith, people will say. Ultimately, you can look at all that, the evidence. You can look at all of these things, but you just got to have faith. You hear this in witnessing conversations, right? The believer is getting, is getting tired of answering objections and finally gets to the point where maybe they get to, to, to things they just don't know of. They're, they're, they're trying to, to answer the questions of the, of the skeptic, and they, they don't know what to say anymore. And finally, they just had enough and say, you just got to have faith in the end. And what the unbeliever is hearing in that moment is that there may not be evidence or there may not be a good reason to believe, but still you should. You should believe even if there is no reason or rational reason to believe. And that kind of thinking of, of faith or belief makes it difficult for us. But the fact is we're surrounded about this kind of thinking. In, in thinking about what is meant by the word believes here. I, I want to start out by just thinking through this very simply. My hope is to show you that, and we don't want to overcomplicate things here. I think at this point, maybe in the conversation, some of us are saying, boy, this idea of faith, which is supposed to be very simple, has been made very confusing. And we're saying to ourselves, I didn't think belief in Jesus was complicated. But maybe it is. And we're thinking about, like, James 2.19, for instance, where we're told that even the demons believe. And that doesn't save. So what kind of belief saves us? What, what do we have to do here? But on one level, we should understand it. This is not complicated. This is, this is in fact, not complicated to the degree a child can grasp this. So children, and in fact, I want you to pay attention here because we're talking about believing in Jesus, right? The avenue to eternal life, the avenue to heaven. And it isn't complicated. And after we talk about how simple this is, I want to turn then and shift the focus and talk about this a little different way and explain it so that I think it'll be helpful to understand the difference then between a true faith and a counterfeit faith. So simply, the question is this. What does God call on us to believe in order that we will not perish but have eternal life? What does God call on us to believe in order that we will not perish but have eternal life? 
And here's how we're going to answer this question. He calls on us to believe two things that produce a third. Two things that produce a third. That's pretty simple, I think. Whoever believes, believes what? Well, there are two things. First, God asks us to believe that we are all sinners. Actually, let me say this a little bit differently. God asks us to believe that we're less perfect than He is and therefore deserve to be separated from His presence forever. God asks us to believe that we're not as perfect as He is. We're sinners. And God must punish sin. It's pretty simple. The only way that we will be allowed to live in the presence of God, that is, go to heaven, are the only people that will be allowed to, to go to heaven are the ones who are as holy as He is. As perfect as He is. That's why in the law we read God saying over and over, Be holy because I am holy. To live with God forever, you must be as perfect as God is perfect. I think a child can understand that. And now you might ask, well, how perfect is God? What does that mean? Well, again, we have the, the Ten Commandments. And if we want to do a little test to see if, how perfect God is, then we just ask simple questions like, have you ever told a lie? God has not told a lie, ever. And if we have, then we're not as perfect or not as holy as God is. And therefore, we deserve to be separated from Him for all eternity. What about stealing? Have you ever stole something? What about disobeying your parents? I think Jesus in the garden before the crucifixion, He, he prays to the Father that if it's possible that the, the cup pass from Him. Right? Nobody in their right mind would long for that kind of pain, that kind of suffering, that kind of excruciating death. And here, Jesus is praying to God, if it's possible, let me out of this. If there's another way. But Jesus said, my desire, more so than not going to the cross, is to be obedient to you. Is to be obedient to the Father. He says, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. That, that's what he prayed, because his desire was to be obedient to his Father. Can we say that in every instance we've lived in perfect obedience to our parents? Even if our parents were not good parents, there are still times in which we have fallen short here, if we're, if we're honest, that we've put our will and desire over our parents' direction, which in that moment they were looking out for us. That's just three of the ten that highlights the fact that we're not as perfect as God is perfect. And therefore we deserve the punishment, the just punishment for our sins. For not living up to what God demands of us. To what he asks of his creatures. Now, sometimes people don't like this teaching. They, they'll say something like, but I'm not that bad. 
You're saying, I deserve to be separated from God for all of eternity for selling some white lies and not obeying my parents all the time, all the while where there are other people in the world who are tremendously more evil than I am, who are more heinous than I am, right? There's, there's some guy in, in Atlanta that, that walks into to different uh, spas and, and shoots people and he's going to get the same punishment that I will? I get the same punishment as the worst of the worst? Think about it this way. Several years ago, there was a, a deadly form of botulism poison that was found in a certain brand of soup. It's one of the most deadly poisons that we know of. And people died before they could find the source of the poison. So, Think this way. How much of this botulism poison is suitable for human consumption? How much should we put in a can of soup? A milligram? Two milligrams? An ounce? What about half the can? The answer is simple, right? We don't want any poison in our can of soup. The smallest amount of poison in the can of soup would taint the entire can. If you eat the soup, you're poisoned. Some cans have several ounces of poisons, other a few milligrams. The end result is the same. The person that eats it is poisoned. So this is what we are to believe. That because of our sin, our can is corrupt. We're ruined. We're in a hopeless state. I remember the prophet Isaiah, his response to the, the holiness of God when he, when he sees it. He sees the perfection of God and he says this word, woe. Right? Woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips. I'm, I'm ruined. The perfection of God highlights the sinfulness of the prophet and he recognizes that because of his sin he deserves to be separated from God. That's the idea of the word woe. Jesus pronounced woes on the, the scribes and the Pharisees in Matthew 23. John MacArthur talks about what he meant by that. John MacArthur says it this way. He says, but Jesus used woe against the scribes and the Pharisees not as, an not as an exclamation, but a declaration, a divine pronouncement of judgment from God. He did not use the term in the sense of the profane phrase, damn you. He was not wishing for the damnation of those false leaders, but he was certifying it. As already noted, it was not his desire that they be condemned, but rather they repent and come to salvation. But he knew if they did not repent and believe they were doomed to hell under God's righteous and just wrath. When God utters woe against evil men, he sets divine judgment in motion. End quote. We're in the same place. Woe is me. God has set divine judgment judgment in motion against me because of my sin. We're not perfect. Just as the scribes and the Pharisees, we're not perfect. We're not perfect just as the prophet Eli um, Isaiah wasn't perfect. 
We are too doomed to, to hell under God's righteous and just wrath. We are sinners, great and small. The end is the same. And the question is, do you believe that? Because that is what we're being asked to believe. It's the clear teaching of the scriptures. The second truth that we're asked to believe is that God loves you in spite of your sin and that this is demonstrated by sending Jesus to remove that sin and to begin to make you perfect by making you more like Jesus through the power of the Holy Spirit that is long. But this is really the, the heart of, of John 3.16. That there were sinners and therefore deserve to perish but God sent His Son Jesus and those who believe in Him will not perish. I, I don't want you to misunderstand something because in our world today, a lot of, in a lot of Christian circles, we hear people say, well, God loves me just the way that I am. And that's used to, to justify a, a host of, uh, of behavior that's contrary to biblical teaching. We hear the, the homosexual that claims to be a Christian say that, that God created me this way and I know that God loves me, so therefore... The conclusion is God, is, God is okay with this lifestyle. In fact, God loves it because he loves me. The couple that is dating and their relationship started getting more and more physical say to themselves, well, God loves me. I know God loves me just the way that I am. It's unconditional. Therefore, he created me to feel these things about this other person. Surely he's going to love me the same if I act on my feelings and follow my heart. In fact, God approves of this behavior because he loves me. We see this sort of thinking in a lot of Christian self-help books. God's love for you is seen in, in who you are. Your task then is to figure out who you are. That's why the, the Christian self-help books is a lot about you and not about God. Because God loves you, therefore your task is to figure out who you are. And you're the center. And you can do this in a lot of ways. This is why the, the Enneagram is so popular in the Christian world today, because God loves you just how you are. Now the next, next logical step then is to use something of secular and occultic origin to figure out who you are. But that's not the way it should be. God loves you, and this is seen in the fact that he sent Jesus to die for you. This is what you're asked to believe. That God would send his own son into the world to live the life that you couldn't live, to be perfect, as God is perfect, and then pay the price that you deserve to pay because you've fallen short. There's a lot that one might not grasp about this, but simply, you are a sinner. Believe that. And believe that Jesus took your place and died so that you might live forever with him. Simple. Now there's a third thing. I said that God asked us to believe two things and that produces another. And that is that believing those things produces commitment then. Believing that one is, is not as perfect as God is perfect and therefore deserving of God's judgment on sin if you believe that, that God sent his son to die in, in your place, when you believe these things, it, it automatically, it leads to, to commitment. It leads to one saying, in essence, Lord, you've, you've died for me. I am a sinner deserving of your judgment. And you've 
paid the price that I should have paid. Therefore, I commit my life to you. I'm yours, and I will go wherever you lead me, because you are my Lord, and you are my God. I, I hope you see what I'm trying to get at here, that there that the belief here, saving faith, that what they were speaking of, involves more than just an, an intellectual commitment about something. That one is a sinner, that Jesus died for them. One, in a sense, can, can believe those things. In fact, the demons believe those things. They believe that they're in rebellion against God, that they deserve hell. They believe that Jesus died for sinners, but what is missing is the commitment to submit to Jesus as the Lord and the ruler of their life. There are some that might believe that Jesus was a real person, that what he said was, was good and a very, of moral value. But then there are those who believe that they are sinners and that Jesus took their place and therefore they see themselves as living under the lordship of Jesus. So to believe here is to believe that one is a sinner, to believe that Jesus loves you by dying for you, and that leads to, to a commitment to him. Or another way of saying that would be it leads to a life of resting in what Jesus has done for you. Let's look at all of this from another perspective. When we think about what goes into saving faith, we say that, that we're justified by faith alone apart from works. In other words, justified. We're made right with God. That's justification. And justification, or being made right with God, happens through the instrument of faith. Faith is the avenue that brings justification. Now, this faith isn't just faith in faith. It isn't belief in whatever I want to believe. It is faith that has an object. And that object is always Christ. So what does saving faith then look like? The reformers, I think, were very helpful here. They recognized uh, three essential elements of saving faith. The first component of saving faith is what they called notia. And it, it basically means that for, for one to believe in something, there needed to be a content, right? If, you're gonna, if faith has an object, if belief has an object, and that object is Jesus, then there needed to be, you need to know something about Jesus. In other words, you need to know the gospel. You need to know that, <clears throat> that Jesus lived a perfect life, that he took our place, that he was our substitute, that he paid the price for us. There's, there's content here that one must know. You, you can't believe in something that you know nothing about. It's pretty simple, right? It's common sense. But this isn't enough to save. It's, it's not enough just to know about Jesus. It's not enough just to sit in a, a Billy Graham crusade and, and hear the gospel. The reformers then spoke of what they called a census. And what they meant here was that there needed to be a conviction that the content of their faith, what they knew about Jesus, was true. You see, it's, it's possible to, to know about Jesus, but yet believe all of that to be false. To sit in a Billy Graham crusade, to get all of the, the content of the gospel dumped on you, and to walk out of there and say, I deny this. But it's also possible to, to walk out of there saying, you know what? I believe what that guy said about Jesus. I believe what the Bible says is true. 
That is a census. Not only does one know about Jesus, but they are convinced that it is true. Here's the thing. A lot of people know about Jesus and they believe it to be true but are not saved. When James says that the demons believe, they know about Jesus. They have the the content. They know it to be true. They're convinced that it's true. But this doesn't save. It's it's necessary, but there must be something more. And this is where the, the reformers spoke of fiducia. And this is how R.C. Sproul puts it. He says, this is the entrusting of ourselves into the hands of Christ. This is the the personal trust and the the reliance that comes with with knowing the gospel, to believing that it's true. It's It's the commitment element. It's the difference between looking at a chair, right? That's notia. Looking at a chair, knowing what a chair is for, And believing that that chair is going to to hold you in it. That if you sit in it, that it'll hold you up. That's a census. And then actually sitting in that chair. That's fiducia. It's the difference between somebody saying that Jesus is, is the Savior of the world. And somebody saying, but Jesus is my Savior. It's that image in the Pilgrim's Progress when a Christian's heavy burden is, is removed and the weight of sin is, is gone because Christ bore it on his behalf. It's resting in what Christ has done for us, which is something that, that characterizes the Christian life. In closing, let me just leave you with a couple things here. First, if you're looking at John 3.16, I want you to notice the, the contrast between the phrases, uh, the word perish and eternal life. Whoever believes, right, that means that all people that exercise faith in Jesus Christ, right, the belief that we've talked about, all people that rest in in Christ for their salvation, they will have eternal life. But it also means that there are those who will not. Either they know and they've rejected the gospel, or they've never heard it, In whatever case, there's people that will perish. That word perish should bring chills to our souls. I I saw a show once where there was a person who was was locked in a a cell and a fire started in the the room and and everybody fled. And this one guy is is left in this this cage and and the the room is is burning. And there was one guy that that stayed and and tried with with all of his might to to save that guy in in the cell, but he couldn't find the key. And he was forced to, to, to leave and, and let the guy perish. Could you imagine being forced to run out of that building knowing that there was a person burning to death in there and that you had the key all along to the cell but never shared it? When we think about saving faith, we must also think about the fact that the message of Jesus must be proclaimed in order for people to place their faith in him. The second thing that I want to leave you with here is, is in verse 17. We often don't think about verse 17 too much, but it, it does tell us that the purpose of Jesus' coming, not to, to condemn the world. The world is condemned already. That's in verse 18. But in order that the world might be saved through him. Notice it doesn't say as many people as possible, but it says that the world, the Greek word is cosmos, 
We talked about this in, in verse 16, that the best understanding of the, of the word world there was the, the evil place in which Christ went. In other words, the evil place in which Christ came into is going to be saved through Christ. He loved the world. The world was evil. He loved it enough to send his son into it. And now we're reading that Jesus came into the world that the world might be saved through him. And the only way that the world is going to be saved through him isn't through a Christian influence of the lost. Although we want Christians to influence every sphere of life. But mere Christian influence on lost people is not going to save the world. Just think of one example, abortion. That evil and horrendous practice and very illustrative of the evil world that Jesus came into. And the hope for abortion to end, it'll change when hearts change. When the gospel changes people from the inside out. The world will be saved when people are saved. Jesus didn't come into the world and say, Oh my, this place is a, a dumpster fire. There's no hope for it. The fact is, is there's always hope in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Don't give up. Don't give up on the world in which we live. Don't say there's no point in, in sharing the gospel with my friends. There's no point in sharing the gospel at work. It isn't going to matter in the end. Be a little more optimistic because Jesus Christ came into the world to save the world. Not just save a few, but to save the world. You want to make a difference in the world? You want your life to make a difference? Start with sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ because that's the biggest difference you can make. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning. We thank you for your word.